Let's open our Bibles to the book of Exodus, the 15th chapter, and I'll try to bring you up to date on where we are. The first chapter we had Israel in bondage. Then in the second chapter we had the birth of Moses, the deliverer for the nation. In the third chapter is call and commission. And in the fourth chapter is credentials to be the deliverer. And in the fifth and sixth chapter we had the conflict between Pharaoh and Moses as it begins. And then chapters 7 through 11, now keep these things in mind, we had the ten judgments that God brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and also four compromises. In the twelfth chapter, we had the Passover, and how it, uh, the blood was applied to save the firstborn of every house. And in the thirteenth chapter, we had the, the sanctification of the firstborn, how that they were set aside to God. In the 14th chapter, we had the crossing of the Red Sea. And because of that crossing of the Red Sea, and because of their deliverance, we come to the 15th chapter. And in this 15th chapter, we have the Song of Redemption. And if we get a chance to cover it tonight, in the 16th chapter, there's the manna. In the 17th chapter, there's water from the rock and war with Amalek. And I trust I would like to get those three chapters, the Lord willing. But whether or not we do, we'll see as we go along. But there's some important things here we want you to see. But in the 15th chapter, I want you to notice the song of redemption. It says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will uh, prepare him an habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Uh, We'll read some more in just a moment. But this song of redemption was primarily for Israel. They were the ones that were singing it. They were the ones that were rejoicing because of their deliverance and their salvation. But it's also typical of the believer. Now, I want you to notice something. There was no singing mentioned... In fact, there's no singing mentioned in the Scripture until redemption. And this word in the first verse, then sang Moses. The word then is very important. It's only after they were saved by the blood and redeemed by the power of God that they begin to sing. And that's true of the believer. It's only after we're redeemed from uh, our sins by the blood of Christ and delivered by the power of, of God from the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son, that the uh, repentant, uh, converted, born-again believer can begin to sing and rejoice and be happy. And there's no uh, mention of singing before that time. You know, the subject of this song here of praise is the Lord Himself. If you'll notice, uh, we can point out several times. In fact, as we read it, you'll see uh, it speaks, The Lord is my strength and and my song, and so on in verse 2, and we'll see the Lord in verse 3, and uh, on down in verse 6, we'll see it twice over, and His Excellency in verse 7, and we'll read it in a moment. But what I wanted to point out is that the Lord Himself is the subject. And this song is not only of the Lord alone, who uh, to the Lord alone who redeems, but this song... It shows their redemption and their salvation, that is, of Israel, and it also shows God's judgment upon the enemies. You see, God not only saved us, but He destroyed those 
that would, uh, would destroy us. He delivered us from, we quoted it a minute ago, the power of darkness, Satan's power, and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So we're saved from sin and from Satan, and we're in God's kingdom, and we're God's children. And that's exactly what it was for uh, Moses and the children of Israel. And uh, it was not until they were sheltered by the blood that the glory cloud appeared, and it's not until they were redeemed and brought forth over the Red Sea that the song of redemption was to be sung. Uh, might mention the, we were talking about the enemies of God's people. I saw on the news, and some of you may have seen it on the CNN news, how that there was a certain there was a little boy that they showed the picture of. Any of you see that in Brazil? That the mayor they finally found out the mayor of the town had some of his big. Uh, uh, macho guys to catch that little boy and they offered him up as a satanic sacrifice and there were children all over that town that were missing and uh, they all these parents would say that they feared the same thing had happened to their satanic worship and sacrificing a little innocent boy and they found the not only the the, the uh, remains but they found also the instruments of of satanic worship there in the presence of this. And, and it was admitted by them. Uh, finally, they caught up with him, and he admitted it, that uh, he had these men. It showed three or four grown men, great big, burly, husky guys. It showed them, and they had admitted that they offered it up at his uh, command in order to bring a blessing uh, upon the mayor in his house. And, uh, you know, we, we don't think much of that, but it goes on all over the world. It goes on all over the world. There's satanic worship and innocent victims of children offered up as sacrifices and mutilated, their bodies cut apart. And it's, it's uh, the power of Satan is real. The devil is after God's people and he's after anyone. And the Bible says, Jesus said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. And the devil is still in the destroying business. And you and I need to realize that we get up here and we preach about salvation and redemption and freedom because the Lord has delivered us. But at the same time for Israel, God destroyed the enemies as well. And that's what we pray that He will do as far as those that are enemies of God's people and enemies of the things that are right. Let's read some more of this. It says in verse 3, The Lord is a man of war. You know, a lot of people don't like to think about that. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Jehovah, Lord, is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His host hath He cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the, into the bottom of the, as a stone. And it says, Thy right hand. You know, the right hand speaks of God's power. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. See, there's the enemy. Right? It says, And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. You see, we said earlier that the Lord is the subject of the, of the praise. And the, uh, the, the fact that Israel was redeemed, their salvation, and then the destruction of the enemy. If you wanted to sum up that song, you'd say, first of all, God deserves all the praise 
for the salvation of his people and for the destruction of those that are enemies of God's people. That would sum it up. We can read the rest of it and we probably will. Let's go on down. In verse 8, And with the blast of thy nostrils the waters were gathered together, the flood stood upright as, as an heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. Notice the enemy's always saying, I will, but he's never able to do it, is he? My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You take when the enemy starts bragging about what all he's going to do, God says, I can put a stop to that real quick. You know, you find people that, oh, I'll destroy Christianity and there's been attempts there, or I'll destroy those that little church and that little church will come to naught. I've had people say when we first organized this church uh, in 1959, well, we wouldn't last six months. Well, we're here 33. This will be 34 years, February the 2nd. And we're still here. You know why? God is still here. And if God wants it here, it'll be here. And it'll be here another hundred years. And it'll keep on being here as long as He wants it here. And so, just rest assured that the enemy is not going to destroy uh, God's work. And men may come and go, but God's work will live on. Moses died, but Joshua took up, didn't he? And he kept on. And then it says... uh, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Look at verse 10. Thou didst blow with thy wind. See, God just has to uh, blow with his, voice, with his breath. With God's wind. We uh, quoted a scripture the other evening which said, as Brother Randy preached on the spirit or breath of God. Job says, If God would take away his breath and spirit, all flesh would perish from the earth. All flesh. Everything would die. God breathed out and everything began to live. God inhales. We're just living by the very breath of God. There's just a heartbeat between us and eternity. That's all there is. And so man, you know, a lot of times he thinks, boy, I'll stand forever. And just like the rich farmer, you know what he said? He said, soul, take thine ease, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. God said, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be that thou hast provided? You see, we're in the hands of God, and we better remember that. Then it says uh, on verse uh, uh, 10, Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them, they sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? And that means the mighty ones, actually. The word gods, if you have a reference in the margin, it means who is like God as far as mighty ones are concerned. Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, verse 11, doing wonders. Thou stretchest out thy right hand. Here's the right hand of power. The earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them with uh, in thy strength unto a, thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold uh, on the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab trembling shall take hold upon them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord. Till thy people pass over, which thou hast purchased. They were purchased with blood, right? And redeemed by power. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. 
in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which the hand, thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. His kingdom is everlasting, and he will bring in everlasting righteousness. It says, For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots uh, and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. That's what happened. And this is what Moses and the children of Israel were singing about. And then it says in Miriam, she takes up the, the cause. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. By the way, don't ever misunderstand the dances of the Bible. They were just jumping around for joy. They were happy that they had been delivered. And it was not anything at all that could be classified as vulgar or off uh, color. It was exactly what they were doing and rejoicing for what God had done for them. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days' journey, three days into the wilderness. Remember, they were supposed to go three days' journey. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. We'll take that up in a moment. Miriam with her timbrels and dances. And then we have the three days journey is another point of significance in this chapter. And it's usually associated with death and resurrection. And uh, just as Moses and the children of Israel were baptized in the, in the Red Sea, it's typical of the believer's baptism. And it's after that that uh, we are on resurrection ground. The three days are symbolical of... of uh, Death, burial, and resurrection, almost without exception in the Scripture. The, uh, the uh, sixth chapter of Romans might be a good reference at this point in time if you'd like to. Verse 22 says, and, and found no water. Even though they were redeemed, delivered, and now set free, and they had gone their three days' journey into the wilderness, they were uh, as much as dead uh, to their trespass and sin and risen in a new life and now set free. And yet, here in the wilderness, there's no water. You know, the world is dry and thirsty. It's a place where no water is found. First they found no water, and then they had bitter waters. We'll talk about that in a moment. The next verse says, And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters. They, they first had no water, and then they found some water. But what was it like? Marah. The waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it is called Merah. And that means bitterness. They start uh, facing the trials of life and testings of life after you become a Christian. Isn't it amazing how that you can be like Israel, redeemed from, with blood and with power and set free from bondage? And already be dedicated to God, baptized unto Moses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says we, they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The cloud covered them, the waters were on either side, and so they were actually immersed because the cloud was over them. And they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And after redemption, after salvation, the Christian begins to experience some trials and testings. 
Come to find that the world doesn't have anything to offer. It's a dry and thirsty land. Come to find out that the, some of the waters of life, the bitter waters of trials and sufferings and, and testings that you face, uh, they came to Mara. Found out becoming a Christian didn't deliver you from all the problems and, and uh, trials of life, did it? You only had to face them, but you have the Lord to face them with. And I won't get into something here in a moment. And so even though they had the bitter waters in verse 24, and the people murmured against Moses saying, What shall we drink? Isn't that typical of God's people today? What are we going to do? Now we've become Christians. We've been saved. We've been baptized. we joined the church. We're among Christians and having fellowship. And now we're having all these problems. What are we going to drink? Moses, what did Moses say? And he cried unto the Lord, Moses, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. You know, the tree in the Bible is very symbolical in many instances. First of all, it's symbolical of the curse. We know that the tree, it says that Christ was... uh, uh, crucified on the cross. Blessed is the one uh, that has redeemed us. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law, for it's written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the what tree. And then the ground of, of uh, the place where uh, rest is found, as far as Abraham of old, remember they rested under the tree in, in Genesis chapter 18 when we were teaching Genesis. We pointed out that the angels came and they rested under the tree. And then... They were fed under the tree. It was a ground of communion, place of communion. And here, it's the principle of action in the daily life of the believer. The tree is cast into the waters. The tree typifies the cross of Christ, who by going down into the place of death, sweetened the bitter waters of life for you and I. In other words, we might say this, that the cross... Transforms to the believer, transforms everything to the believer. The cross of Christ transform, transforms everything to you and I. Why does it so? Paul says, God forbid, listen, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, now listen, saving the cross, the tree of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, here's what it has done, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He says, the things of this life. In other words, they've been crucified. Though it has transformed everything in relation to the life of the believer. You can endure sufferings because Jesus suffered more for you and I, didn't he? Uh, you know, someone says, well, uh, I have so many problems and I, I'm uh, despised and rejected and I have uh, uh, bruises and burdens and sufferings and pain and aching. You'll find everything that the believer suffers on the, in this wilderness journey, Jesus has already suffered multiplied more in, in, in uh, number than, than we have and greater than we have. We say, well, we have pain and sorrow. The Bible says He was bruised for our iniquities. Right? The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. By His stripes we were healed. Isaiah 53. Someone says, well, uh, a lot of people reject me. The Bible says he is despised and rejected of men. The Bible says, I, have, I mean, you know, the Bible teaches that man has to work by the sweat of his brow for a living, by the sweat of his face. Okay. Shalt thou eat bread? 
And we say, oh, it's, it's horrible to have to go out and sweat and labor to make a living. The Bible says Jesus in the, in the garden sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Anything that you and I have undergone in this life in the way of trials or testings or sufferings, Jesus has undergone more. And if we realize that, what does the tree then do? It helps us to realize that everything, the cross of Christ, transforms everything to the believer. And it makes us see that uh, see things of the trials and testings in a different light. And it's only as the believer applies practically this principle of the cross to his daily life that the bitter waters of our wilderness experience, wherever they may go and lead us, are made sweet. Have you ever noticed that sometimes we'll suffer some injustice or something? And if you'll just look at Jesus and you'll look at what he suffered on the cross then that'll be sweeter altogether. You'll say, well, Jesus suffered more than that. And Paul says in the book of Hebrews, you have not yet resisted unto blood, right? He's speaking of looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down on the right hand of God. And he said that you have not yet resisted unto blood. Okay? And then we find they come to Elam. Let's notice this. Uh, in verse 26, well, God tells him this first. And said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth, healeth thee. And they came to Elam, where were, look, twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees. And they encamped there by the waters. Did you know after the testings and trials and afflictions, there's always refreshment and rest and rejoicing. After they come through all of this, they were out in the wilderness, there was no water. They came across the bitter water, and the tree sweetened that bitter water, and God says, Obey my commandments and do what I tell you to do. And God says, Now here's a place of rest. They came to Elam. Twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. A place of rest after that. There's a little poem that goes like this. The inner side of every, cl- every cloud is bright and shining. I therefore turn my clouds about and always wear them inside out to show the lining. And that's what we ought to do. We say that every cloud has a silver lining. I'll read that again. The, the inner side of every cloud is bright and shining. I therefore turn my clouds about and always wear them inside out to show the lining. And so we can always say that there's a brighter side. And if you, you know, you and I, we, we get burdened down with some of the things that happen to us in life, either physically, mentally, financially, whatever, or the problems, the trials at work or play or wherever it is at school or learning, whatever it is, we face these problems. And then if we'll just really realize that it's not as bad, maybe, as it feels or looks at the time. That it's really, the Lord is with us. And Paul said, He delivered me out of all my troubles. See? It didn't keep him from his troubles, but He delivered him out of all of his troubles. God didn't promise to keep us out of all troubles. He says, call upon me in the time of trouble and I will answer thee. I'll deliver thee. And so, uh, if it were that he's going to keep us out of all troubles, then we'd have something 
different. You know, the rejoicing of salvation didn't come till after the death of the firstborn. And the song of redemption didn't come till after they crossed the Red Sea. And then the uh, refreshment from that water that was made sweet didn't come till after they had found no water, first of all, and then they found bitter water, but the refreshing came after that water was sweetened. And so it's after the trials and the testings that they came to Elam, the twelve wells of water and three score and ten palm trees. Let me give you something. This may be a typical of the ministry of the Word. At peace and rest in serving God or ministering the Word. Let me give you two references. Look in Luke 9 and Luke 10. Luke 9 and Luke 10. Remember, there's twelve wells of water and three score and ten palm trees. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then what did he say? And what did Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you, that's service, isn't it? And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The first rest in that passage, and I'll read this in a minute in Luke, but just let me give you this I'm quoting in Matthew. But the first rest of salvation is given to us. The second rest is after we take that yoke of service upon us, and he says, learn of me, and you shall find, listen carefully, find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now look at Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all the devils to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick and so on and so forth. What did he do? The twelve disciples. Were the twelve wells of water? Now look, chapter 10 and verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy also. Here you have seventy. There's seventy palm trees, wasn't it? And and sent them out, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors into his harvest. Aren't both of these verses typical of the ministry of the Word? Because first he chose twelve to go out and preach, and then he says, I want to get other seventy. Ten verse one and two. So you have twelve wells of water, and then you have seventy palm trees. And it doesn't mean that these two things are directly tied in, but you might find some typical or symbolical uh, meaning here. But uh, it's only as we minister the Word of God that we truly find refreshing and rest in the things of God. It's only you, as you, as a Christian, are happy in serving God and doing what God wants you to do that you're at the place of twelve wells of water and seventy palms. That's what I'm trying to show you. There's, you know, there's some Christians that have not surrendered to serve God. They've only surrendered in a sense to say, I want God's salvation, but I don't want to serve God. And they're the most miserable people in the world. You know why? They're accepting all and giving nothing. Remember Jesus, He healed the ten lepers. And they went. To, he says, go your way and show yourself to the priest. The Bible says, as they went, they were healed. And one that was a Samaritan turned back and gave the Lord thanks. And Jesus looked at him and he says, where are the nine? Were there not ten cleansed? He says, where are the nine? 
That's the way it is with Christians today, isn't it? Were there not ten saved? But where are the nine? There's about one out of a, about ten percent of us here tonight, right? That's what the Lord is talking about. How many people want to come and give God thanks? And then we talk about refreshing and salvation and blessings. And you find some Christians that are backslidden away from God and won't attend the house of God. They won't serve God. And they, they uh, want to be happy just because they've accepted the Lord. Well, that should make you happy as far as your soul is concerned. You ought to know that you're saved and redeemed. That's true. And there's a certain amount of rest and peace and salvation. But then Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, listen now, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Begin to follow me and begin to serve me. Yoke is typical of service. And he says, you shall find rest unto your souls. You'll find rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's only as we begin to serve God in faith and, and are willing to serve Him in that way that we're going to find the rest that we need. Or chapter 16, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. See, they're complaining. God had just miraculously given them uh, a, a miracle of changing those bitter waters, poisonous waters probably, into sweet, drinkable, and refreshing waters. And he had just given them the experience of twelve wells of water, listen, and three score and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters, and they enjoyed a refreshing and rest, and now they're going to start murmuring again and complaining. Isn't that typical of God's people? God gives us all the blessings and everything is going fine, and then the first little thing we run up against, we start complaining. And that's what Israel did. And it says um, in uh, verse 2, And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full, they'd forgotten the bondage, hadn't they? You know, isn't that Christians? Saved and redeemed and say, well, now, when I was out there in the world, I didn't have so many problems. Why didn't you just leave me alone out there in Egypt? And they forget all about the bondage of sin and the power of Satan in their lives and how they're held down and how they're depressed and how they're, how they're really under Satan's yoke and in captivity to Satan. And they forget all about that. And all they remember is how they fed the belly out there. The flesh pots and, and how it was out in the world. And the pleasures of sin. And the world. They say, I could go do anything I wanted to do when I was out there before I was saved. Nobody said anything about it. I was free. Yes, but the devil had you. So you really weren't free, were you? And it says, uh, And when we did eat bread, bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. My, what they thought of their leaders. They thought Moses and Aaron had brought them out there to kill them with hunger. And listen, Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven. God could have said, I'll rain fire and brimstone, couldn't he? Like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah. But he says, I'll rain bread. Uh, you know God is long-suffering, isn't He? He, 
He says, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. God says, I want to see what they're going to do. If they're grateful or if they're ungrateful. If they're going to obey me or disobey me. And it shall come to pass... That on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Now on the sixth day they, they were to gather twice as much of this bread or manna from heaven. And we'll give you the reason in a moment. And Moses and Aaron said unto all the, congreg- all the children of Israel, At even, then you shall know that the Lord hath brought you out from the hand, land of Egypt. You know, it seems like they had to be pro- it had to be proven to them time and again that they were delivered. He delivered them by the, the uh, Passover and uh, spared them the death of the firstborn, remember? Then He delivered them by power out of, across the Red Sea and out from Pharaoh and his bondage. And now, uh, Moses says, when God gives you the bread, then you're going to know that God's brought you out of Egypt. <laughs> you see, you have to have time and time again. God has to prove it to you. That's why it's not uh, so pious to disbelieve that God has done what He's done for us. You know, a lot of people say, well, now I'm not so sure that God has saved me. Why aren't you sure? God said He saved you, didn't He? And they say, well, that's presumption. Why is it presumption to believe God? Why are you presuming anything when you take God at His Word? Would it have been presumption for the children of Israel to have said at this point in time, had they not been filled with unbelief, said, I know God has delivered us from Egypt. No, Moses has to say, God's going to show you again that you're already, you know, you're saved, you're brought out. Look at this. In verse um, uh, 6, Then, last part of it, Then you shall know that the Lord hath brought you out from the land of Egypt. Well, I thought they already knew that, didn't you? Had they believed God, they'd have known it for sure. They had experienced it. It was already there. It was proven. They were already out. But he says, I want to prove it to you again. And in the morning, then you shall see the glory of the Lord, for that He heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that you murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat and in the morning bread to the full. For that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which you murmur against Him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. You remember we read back earlier where it says they murmured against Moses and Aaron? He says, your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. It was God they didn't believe. Verse 9, And Moses spake unto Aaron, saying to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness and said, Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them, saying, At evening you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it came to pass that at evening the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the host. And when the dew dew that lay uh, was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing, a little small wafer as small as hoar of frost on the ground. When the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, It is manna. If you have a marginal reference, it says, What is this? Or, Is it a portion? What is this? Is this a portion? Is this what God has given us? It is manna. Dr. Kemp used to talk about manna 
for the children of Israel. He said, whatever satisfied the palate of every Israelite, the taste thereof was like wafers, uh, honey-made wafers. And it, it, whatever taste that they required, it satisfied their, their taste. And so it was a miraculous food for the children of Israel. Let's go on and read it. And uh, it says, For they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, and omer for every man according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. Remember we studied that a omer is the tenth part of an ephah. And an ephah is about a bushel. So it would be about a tenth of a bushel would be, what, six pints or something? It would be a, a six to nine pints probably because the ephah is a little more than a bushel. Okay, let's go on. It says in verse uh, 17, And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. And when they did meet it with an omer, he, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. There was sufficient for everyone. Moses said, Let no man leave of it until the morning, notwithstanding. Look, this is what I like. Moses said, Let no man. He says, Don't leave any of it till the morning. Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto Moses. But some of them left of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was wroth with them. And they gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating, and when the sun waxed hot, it melted. came to pass that on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said unto them, This is that which the Lord has said. You see, the, the leaders, they come up and say, Well, they got twice as much today. Well, evidently that business of keeping it till the morning kind of got to them. And they said, Well, if we... We can't store this stuff up because it's going to breed worms, right? And so they get twice as much, and they're going to keep it till the next day. And that's what Moses commanded, wasn't it? Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which you will bake today. Seat that you will seed. And that which remaineth over, lay up for you to be kept until the morning. Now on the sixth day, he says, you keep that extra portion till tomorrow. Now, if they did it against God's command, it bred worms. But if they did it with His command, it, would, it wouldn't do that. You see, it all depends on what God tells us to do, right? Now, look at the story. It says, And they laid it up till the morning as Moses bade, and it did not stink, neither was, neither was there any worm therein. Because it was for the Sabbath, right? Now, look. And Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today you shall not find it in the field. Now look, Moses says, Now don't go out today, you'll not find it. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. And it came to pass that, they, that there went out some of the people. <laughs> look at this. Isn't this amazing? There went out some of the people on the seventh day together, and they found none. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Moses said, You can gather six days, and there won't be any on the seventh. But I'm going to give you enough on the sixth day to eat on the seventh day. But nevertheless, some of them. That's what you have always with people. You can tell them the truth and what God says, and what, but nevertheless, some of them. 
Remember, first of all, he says, don't keep it till the morning, but some of them kept it till the morning and it bred worms. Then he says, you keep it till the morning and it'll be all right on the sixth day for the seventh. And it'll be all right. And they kept it and it was okay. And he says, now don't go out to find any today because there won't be any. But nevertheless, some of them. See, always disobedience. Always make not take. You know what it sums up? is not taking God at His word and believing what He says and doing what God says. That's what it amounts to. And it says, see, God was angry about this. The Lord, verse 28, The Lord said unto Moses, How long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called the name thereof a manna. And it was like a coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Here were honey wafers. We think we got something new. We go down to the store and furs and buy some honey wafers. They had it back there and God fed them 40 years with them. With manna from on high. And the Bible says in one of the Psalms they did eat angels' food. God provided for them in a miraculous way. And yet they... They would not believe all his miracles that he did. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded Phil and Omer of it to be kept. Look at this. Phil and Omer of it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. Not only was it kept one day, but it was kept year after year after year. And it became a memorial that God had provided for them during this time. Let's look at the last part of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel did eat manna forty years until they came to, to a land inhabited They did eat manna until they came unto the borders of the land of Canaan. Now, an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. You read in the book of Hebrews. Look in the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews, if you will, quickly. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, I'll give you this right quick before we close. It says this. Verse 3. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, now listen, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold. We studied the tabernacle. We're talking about in the second veil, like this. You remember we studied behind this second veil, the holy of holies. And it says, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. See, behind that veil, God says these are things to remember. God's laws there in the ark. The ark is typical of Christ, right? And He's the bread of life. And that golden pot of manna was to remind them of the bread of life, of the true bread that God gave them, right? In John chapter 6, read it in conjunction with this. And then we find that there was Aaron's rod that budded, showing that uh, that there's resurrection and life. Remember that rod that budded. And then we find that there was the golden pot of manna and there was the tables of the covenant. The law was kept. Typical of the fact that the law is kept in whom? 
Not in us, but in Jesus, right? He's the only one that kept the law. And you and I cannot say we've kept the law except through Christ. Romans chapter 8, it says, For what the law, listen carefully, we're close. For what the law could not do, it couldn't save. And that it was weak through the flesh. That means we're sinners. And we couldn't keep it. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh without sin condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So that we can say that we have only kept the law because Christ has kept it for us. And we walk in a spiritual way. We walk in obedience to the Lord. And someone says, do you break the law? You say, well, I do, but Christ didn't. And I'm in Christ. And therefore it's kept. I've kept the law. And I'm free from the law. And He became a curse for all those who had... uh, It says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law for... book of the law to do them and it says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us uh, we won't have time I wanted to get into the into the 17th chapter but we just didn't have time we'll try to get into that and the 18th when you get to the 19th we're going to talk about preparation for the law to be given in the 20th chapter we'll have the law and then when we get on a little further from chapters 25 on through the rest it's basically the tabernacle that we've already taught. So when we get over that far, we'll point out a few very important chapters and very important highlights, but we will not deal with the whole tabernacle because we've already taught you that.